0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Ukraine and the question of how long to keep defending a ruined city. Is it really possible for a public broadcaster to rise serenely above all claims of partiality? And what recent additions to the landscape should appear on modern maps? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Terry Stiasny and John Everard will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus we'll have the latest on the resignation of Toronto Mayor John Tory and we'll hear from the British satirist Craig Brown on the release of a new anthology of his work. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Miller, and I'm joined today by Terry Diasny, a political journalist and author, and by the former British diplomat, John Everard. Hello to you both. Hello, hello. Um, we were just discussing before we went to air the, the various roistering in which we had engaged over the weekend. I was up until quite a late hour UK time watching the Super Bowl, and huge condolences to any Philadelphia Eagles fans tuning in right now, as I'm sure very many are. But but John, you were wassailing in your own way this this weekend.
1: Absolutely. I, I entered the strange parallel universe of North Korean studies as conducted by academics who don't actually have to dirty their fingers with what goes on on the ground. I sat through an entire day of really riveting presentations on things like the segmentation of the North Korean industrial class as witness to participation in the healthcare industry and my personal favourite, the political embeddedness of North Korean state trading companies. I'm still not quite sure what a political embeddedness
0: is. I might have fallen Well, I do have a number of questions, John, but they they can all be summed up under the umbrella question. Why? Had you lost a bet or something? No, no, no. I I, I went
1: along because various of my cronies and buddies were going along and there was free food available. Ah, Uh,
0: I'm easily bribed that way. uh, Free Korean food? No, free Indian foods. It turned out well. Nothing but from multicultural. Okay, none, none of that makes any sense. Um, Terry, have you spent any of the weekend uh, engaged in especially niche academic researchers? I'm uh, I'm looking for a seamless segue. <laughs> niche
2: academic. I did do some niche academic research uh, on Friday, uh, where I was listening to some sort of 80 year old radio clips uh, at the Imperial War Museum. That was actually a lot more interesting than it sounds. You know, for for reasons that will become clear. Uh, but no, otherwise I went to, I went to the cinema and the rest of my family did go to the London Welsh Centre to watch the rugby and were, came home seriously depressed because... They so so stre-
0: your <laughs> family have that in common with Philadelphia Eagles fans? Indeed, yes. Yeah. You see how neatly I've tied everything up. Well done. Uh, we will start the show proper, however, in Ukraine, with specific reference to Bakhmut, the smallish town in Donetsk Oblast, which has become the front line in the longest battle since Russia invaded nearly a year ago. Latest reports suggest that Russia is making gains. Even Ukrainian officials have admitted that the situation has become difficult over the weekend Wagner Group the Russian paramilitary organization which has been heavily involved in the fighting claimed to have taken a nearby village pointedly emphasizing that they did so without much help from Russian regulars Um, Terry we'll talk shortly about the detail of Bakhmut and what we know about what is going on there but first I want to talk about how we know what is going on there. A year into regarding this conflict, from your perspective, what's been the best means of satisfying yourself that you do actually have a reasonably clear idea of what's going on?
2: Um, well, I think without having you know the access to real inside, uh, sort of on the ground information, not having been been there myself. Uh, I think it's it's quite interesting taking a, a view across what the different, particularly different NATO countries are saying about what they can see, you know, about what's going on on the ground. I mean, I was quite interested today to look at what the, the Ministry of Defence have been doing, this uh, regular briefing, the UK ministry, where they're saying, look, this is this is how we see it, this is what we see are the sort of the current conditions on the ground. I mean, one of the things they were pointing out today was, you know, the, just just the sheer length of the front line, you know, 30 kilometres of, of front line that has to be either attacked at or defended. So I think trying to take a, an overview and trying to get lots of information from, from different sources and trying to weigh them against each other.
0: Uh, John, there has been some particularly good reporting from Bakhmut recently by Olga Gerin at the BBC, and it, it's notable among the Ukrainian soldiers she speaks to that an amount of well, uh, to, to quote the old army song, we're here because we're here because we're here, fatalism has set in. Do you, does Ukraine need to be careful about, especially with a, a front line like Bakhmut, confusing the strategic with the symbolic? I do realize that there can be an overlap.
1: Yes, there can be an overlap, and the the symbolism, I think, is clear enough. But strategically also, I mean, there's nothing very much left of the the, the town of Bakhmut now, uh, but it is at a major road junction, and it would be strategically useful for the Russians. I see the military experts are saying that even if it did fall to Russia, that doesn't necessarily mean that Russia would be able to launch a uh, a wide advance uh, based on on, on its capture. But I think for Ukraine, uh, they you know the, the hideous the grim um attraction, is that the word of Bakhmut, is that the Russians are using human wave tactics. Um, The Ukrainians are killing huge numbers of Russian soldiers and capturing huge amounts of Russian equipment. Uh, 824 deaths a day, they reckon, and nobody seems to have challenged that figure. Uh, In terms of weakening the Russian military effort, it's just too good to pass up. We're talking about Bakhmut. It's not just Bakhmut. I mean, in the last few hours, it's become apparent that elsewhere in the Donetsk region, an entire elite Russian infantry unit has been wiped out. Equipment, men, everything, just, just gone. Uh, they insisted on driving down the same road uh, under the same Ukrainian artillery fire time and time again till
0: they're all dead. It really is absolutely insane. Uh, indeed so, and Terry, understandably, there's fairly viable and plentiful reports, as in fact there has been virtually since this thing started, of uh, discontent within Russian ranks, but there also does seem to be be a increasingly obvious schism between Wagner Group uh, and Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, pointedly didn't mention Wagner's role in taking solidar last month. He has doubtless read the same reports that the rest of us have, that the chair of Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, quite fancies Putin's job uh, should Putin have a mishap next to a windowsill.
2: Well, yes, and you know because you, you I suppose, you're not really going to, you know, admit that these people are essentially doing the job that you think that the Russian, you know, main Russian troops ought to be able to do if they had, you know, the men, the resources, everything to to be able to do it, and to have to, you know, admit apart from the the rivalry there that basically we are getting mercenaries to do to do the really tricky stuff is not something that you would would want to be saying, and I think you know it's it's obviously interesting against the background of the whole. NATO discussion and obviously having seen Zelensky here in, in London last week talking about what Ukraine thinks it really needs at this crucial moment. I mean, you mentioned Ola Gerin's report there and she, some of the soldiers that she was talking to were saying, look, we've, we've actually still got problems with our ammunition and basically mm. you're trying to keep this pressure up. You know, we just we need more ammunition. We need more effective ammunition and then they want to be able to hold it. So this is going to kind of lend more weight to all these arguments that, you know, we just need more kit and we need more resources to keep coming, particularly if it's an Few weeks.
0: Uh, John, there are also uh, plentiful and viable reports, and it's only to be expected that Russia is gearing up for another large offensive uh, driven by two factors. One is that it is gradually becoming less cold in Ukraine, although Ukraine's winters come early and leave late, and they're very, very cold. But also, we are approaching February 24th, which will be the anniversary of Russia beginning its 72 hour conquest uh, of Ukraine. How important do you think that date is to Russia? Do they, does does Putin want, he he will presumably feel obliged to make some remarks uh, on a year of this adventure. He needs a win, doesn't he?
1: he needs a win it's not all so clear he's going to get one uh, how important is it russia in general not just in this context is obsessed with dates. it's a deep part of russian culture so yes 24 february will have been ringed uh, on uh, any number of calendars in in the kremlin uh, the offensive appears to have started the ukrainians are reporting uh, significantly increased uh, artillery fire as of this morning uh, and further attempts to advance uh, It looks as if the Russians are trying to capture uh, Bakhmut by the 24th, rather than start the offensive on the 24th. So far, of course, the Ukrainian lines are holding, and as i just said, they're inflicting very heavy casualties on the Russians, but nobody knows how this is going to play out. One big change uh, is that in the famous huge arms package uh, that President Biden announced, the one in which he talked about the Abrams tanks, everybody got excited about the main battle tanks, and hardly anybody noticed that this included very large numbers of bradley fighting vehicles and also strikers now the first uh batch of, of bradley's 60 of them left the united states in january and must by now be in ukraine 60 bradley's around the battlefront will make a tremendous difference
0: well we will of course be talking much more about ukraine as february 24th approaches so for the moment we will move on and we will we'll make a due acknowledgement up front that chair of the BBC is as impossible a job as exists in British life. It is traditional among the people of Britain, whatever their own persuasions, to believe that the BBC panders to interests opposing their own at the very least, is actively conspiring against them at worst. That being the case, among the very many things that aspirants to that role should keep at barge poles length is the private finances of the Prime Minister. The current occupant of the role, Richard Sharp, has received quite the wig from MPs over the part he played in arranging a loan for them, Prime Minister Boris Johnson while he was an applicant for the BBC role appointees to which are ultimately signed off on by the Prime Minister. Uh, John it's it's always good to have you here but especially at moments like this because regular listeners will value your expertise in interpreting uh, British passive aggressive understatement and what it actually means your long career at the Foreign Office gave you a thorough schooling in it. Uh, the the report accuses Richard Sharp of having made, and I quote, a significant error of judgment. That, that's bad, isn't it? This is the civilian
1: equivalent of the senior officer smiling and leaving the revolver with one <laughs> cartridge
0: in the chamber on the table as he walks out. Yes, this is bad. Um, Terry, sh- should he quit or more to the point, is he going to have to?
2: Uh, I think he may possibly be uh, be pushed into that. I think one of the significant things that has shifted today, so we had this uh, report from select committees of MPs who are deeply unhappy that basically when he came to be questioned by them, he didn't volunteer this information about his particular uh, relationship with uh, with Boris Johnson. They heard all about his previous party donations. They didn't hear about this the loan arrangement thing. Uh, they are very critical. Today, the Prime Minister's spokesman, Rishi, was really kind of trying to distance himself from this decision and really trying to sort of say, yeah, "Not in my time. Happened happened before I had anything to do with it. We're having an investigation. Don't don't ask me about that." So wasn't really sort of very outspoken uh, support for Richard Sharp. And so you think, yeah, he's he's in possibly in the in the in the waiting room on the way out. Uh,
0: John Richard Sharp's defence appears to be that he didn't actually formally act as any sort of go-between here. He merely introduced a couple of people to each other
1: yeah a bit thin isn't it Mm. Uh, I I mean if you are going to take on a job of the sensitivity and complexity uh, of uh, running the BBC then you ought to have the sensitivity also to know that this kind of issue is best brought out and put in front of the appointments committee at the outset it's quite possible that had he said you ought to know that I'm a a buddy of Sam Blythe and you know this Johnson person you may have heard of um, £800,000 loan guarantee that's okay isn't it and Committee might have let that through. We don't know. He didn't actually provide the money himself, but it's the fact he didn't, and it all got swept under the carpet that I think has annoyed people.
0: Uh, I, we will talk a bit more shortly about the the wider ramifications of this and the the means by which a public broadcaster can avoid such entanglements. But, but Terry, first of all, I, I I do confess to being somewhat mesmerised by the key detail of this story, uh, Boris Johnson widely assumed to be not short of a quid, what does he need eight hundred grand for? Do we do we have any clear understanding of that? That
2: is the question that we haven't really answered. I think he's widely assumed not to be quite short of money until now, when he suddenly started earning huge amounts of money for speeches and for book advances. Um, but I think the perception has always been that he has, although he's not someone who likes luxury generally. In terms of you know, he used to always drive a, an absolutely terrible car. You know, you can't you can tell he's not really buying expensive clothes. He is staying in a house at somebody else's. expense expense at the moment. So he hasn't got a huge amount of outgoings apart from his family, uh, you know, school fees in the past, things like that. But he, there is this perception that he sort of lived quite a way beyond his means and has always been looking in the absence of his very well paid newspaper columns and things like that for other ways to get money so yeah we're not quite, nobody's quite sure where all of his money goes but yeah that is one of the questions Uh, To
0: return to the question of the BBC John, do you think the relationship the British have with their national broadcaster is, is uniquely vexed? I mean where I come from people do get up in arms from time to time about the ABC along similar lines to the way that the British do about the BBC but it doesn't ever strike me as quite as, as rancorous verging on deranged. Uh, the Germans have a similar relationship with
1: their public broadcasting. Oh, that's nice uh, to hear. And they, uh, I mean, every German newspaper will complain about one or other of the, the publicly funded German radio stations. And, of course, just to show that this is not unique, the thematic words, Patricia Schlesinger, um, the head of German public broadcasting, sacked in August last year, not because she thought she might have introduced somebody to somebody else to guarantee a loan, but probably simply envelopes to the tune of a hundred thousand euros in the first place and as various inquisitive german papers dug a bit deeper larger and larger amounts appeared no formal statement was ever made nobody quite
0: knows how much money is involved and she's gone but to, to return to the British example, Terry, and this is, this is a, a pet theory I have cooked up more or less on the spot, is the, is the tradition of seething at the BBC sort of the obverse of the, the strange fetishisation verging on actual worship of the NHS?
2: Um, I think it's because the BBC has this idea of trying to be objective and trying to be non-partisan, whereas in reality, people who've been put in charge of the BBC have often been sympathetic to one party or the other. And this has gone both ways at the time. So it's because they prize the idea of objectivity so much that someone who's seen to be a politician or, you know, connected to politicians being at the top of it is, is... such a sensitive thing because they assume. I mean, you know, most people who work within the BBC will never ever have met the chairman or have had any contact with them beyond the odd sort of all staff email wishing you, you know, saying "Aren't we doing terribly well, chaps?" kind of thing. So it's, it's there's not a da- direct connection there. But I think it's this value of objectivity that is, you know, the important thing that people fear for and they worry that it's not going to happen. But
0: it, is that an, is that a solvable problem, John? Because it, it strikes me that the best the BBC can do, and I'm not actually sure they can say this out loud for the trouble it would cause, is to say, look, objectivity we can strive for, Mm -hmm. but there is absolutely no way in a million years we are ever going to actually accomplish it. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, what is objectivity? Discuss. (laughs) Uh,
1: You can strive for it, you can uh, try to get balance into your broadcasts, but you are never going to please everybody all the time. You are always going to make mistakes from time to time, and you know, the, the, even if you could work out what the the, the actual facts of a situation are, and if you are under pressure, finding quickly, uh, that isn't always going to be the case. Uh, somebody else is likely to come up later uh, with an entirely different slant on the same set of
0: data. You're doomed, uh, Terry. Just a final quick thought on this, because you would understand, I guess, the internal dynamics better than either myself or John. But again, and it's obviously a big night for my hastily concocted pet theories. It st- always strikes me when the BBC ties itself been knots, that the dynamic is that it is excruciatingly aware that, yes, it probably does trend broadly, metropolitan liberal remain voting, and therefore tries to furiously overcompensate in the other direction to please those of its licensed payers who are not. Um, and But it doesn't really understand their point of view or their case, and therefore ends up looking a bit thick.
2: I think what it does is it gets into uh, a real tiz about particular issues. At first the first line of defence is always, Oh, both sides are criticizing us, so we must be doing something absolutely fine and then eventually they realise they missed something quite important or they misinterpreted or something like the Brexit vote. Why did we not realise, you know, that this was all happening and we didn't really, you know, cover this enough? I mean I think, you know, the idea is journalists, maybe there's a general, you know people work in metropolitan centres so they tend to take on kind of metropolitan values. There have been a fair few sort of conservative heads of communications Mm -hmm. who have come from being former BBC journalists. I can think of three in the last few years. Um, you know, So quite a lot. So there are quite a lot of individuals who have always been having the argument, you know, are we missing something? Are we ignoring something? And then eventually later on they'll have a big inquest into why did we get this all wrong? And then next time they won't quite see the next thing coming and we'll go through the same process again.
0: Terry and John, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both shortly. But now, though we are sticking with the theme of significant errors of judgement, to Toronto. Currently down a mayor after the weekend's resignation of john tory tory confessed to and apologized for an affair with a former staff member it all appeared somewhat off-brand for tory who was first elected in 2014 promising to be a dull competent successor to the legendarily rumbustious not to say downright rambunctious robert ford i'm joined now by our toronto correspondent thomas lewis um thomas was this one of those scandals that appeared as akin to a lightning strike or had people suspected this for some while well, I don't think people had suspected anything
3: at all of John Tory, uh, the the mayor of Toronto, Andrew, who, as you rightly said, was a fairly straight-laced, fairly sedate successor to Rob Ford when he was first elected back in 2014. Uh, a story was reported by the Toronto Star, the big newspaper here, of course, alleging this relationship with a 31-year-old former member of his staff during the a period of during the pandemic uh, and about three hours later he summoned reporters to City Hall and announced his resignation on the spot now he still is mayor uh, for the next few days uh, he has to formally table his resignation I believe to council so when that take, takes effect we're expecting that maybe as soon as Wednesday uh, then uh, his current deputy mayor she will take over until a new election takes place but as a story Andrew it's really taken pretty much the whole country i think it's fair to say by total surprise
0: well aside from surprised what has the general tone of this been i guess if we if we think of the british media as a benchmark relative to that how keen is the canadian media on salacious detail
3: I suppose it it depends on the story, actually, Andrew. But I'm not sure many people are looking for the salacious details of of this relationship that has now come uh, come to public attention. You know, I think it's interesting. John Tory only won re-election just in October for a third term, and if he'd served that term, he would have become the longest-serving mayor in Toronto's history. But I think it's fair to say there is a sort of wide sense of a sort of decline, if you like, of the city. Toronto not being in its best shape at the moment after the The period of the pandemic, there are things like overflowing trash cans, the public transport network is in disarray. There are lots of controversial plans to sort of build over lots of parts of Toronto's heritage. Uh, There's a housing crisis as well as many other cities of Toronto's equivalent size are facing at the moment. And John Tory was becoming increasingly the face of that, I think it's fair to say, a position he, I think it was quite clear, didn't feel particularly comfortable with. So I think with this revelation and just how quickly he announced that he was going to resign, Uh, it was part of a sort of broader picture of dissatisfaction with his mayoralty. He did win re-election, but only 29% of voters turned out to vote. So I think for many people, that was hardly the most ringing endorsement for another term, given it wasn't clear what vision he would have uh, for a third term in office uh, when he was running last October, Andrew.
0: Uh, Tom, as, as you note, he has only been recently re-elected and his going is a surprise. So have we yet already seen uh, potential successors frantically searching for hats that they may throw into the ring?
3: Absolutely. And some of those hats have already been thrown into ring and the ring, Andrew. And the period of, of the campaign and the re-election campaign hasn't even begun yet. I think the person to sort of maybe watch most closely is someone called Gil Penaloza. He's an urbanist. He ran against Tory in October's election, going from sort of zero name recognition, really, uh, among lots of voters here in Toronto, to coming, I think, second, a pretty distant second, but second nonetheless. And I think what was interesting about Gil Penaloza's campaign, is that it was full of ideas. I think he would have admitted himself he really didn't stand much of a chance of winning the election, but it standed, stood, excuse me, in, in opposition to really a vacuum of ideas from the incumbent mayor. Things like you know building more housing, densifying neighborhoods in a sensitive way, even appointing something he was describing as a city architect who could review how to preserve heritage in Toronto as well as encourage development here, Toronto is still one of the fastest growing cities in North America. So he'll be one to watch. It'll be interesting whether his campaign, I think, can stand up to not having someone like John Tory to to be in opposition to, if you like, and whether his ideas chime uh, in in a sort of meaningful way. A final thought, Andrew, I think, you know, you look at other cities around Canada, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, they over the past few years have elected sort of surprise candidates, outside ones. Toronto's system is it's kind of different. It's been described that it's kind of an old fashioned way of politics, you know, old money, old conservative connections that really can give you success, which is what John Tory succeeded in, in tapping into for, for three elections. So it's interesting to see whether someone like Gil Penaloza will be able to change that pattern and will be able to surprise everyone and, and come from nowhere effectively and win the mayoralty when the time comes.
0: Thomas Lewis in Toronto, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Let's go back to Terry and John. And now, despite maintenance. Mountainous- ...mountainous evidence of the folly of all such undertakings... ...another August institution proposes asking the general public for input. In this instance, it is the UK's National Mapping Agency, the Ordnance Survey... ...the venerable cartographers plan to solicit views on what could be usefully added to their maps... ...to help users better navigate the modern world. The last such consultation in 2015 added such things as art galleries, solar farms, skate parks... ...and charging points for electric cars... There is no word as yet whether anyone has suggested adding definitive instructions for folding the bloody things. Uh, John, a well-travelled chap such as yourself, do you still like a paper map?
1: Yes, I use paper maps all the time. Not usually ordnance survey, but uh, I find they're very useful. You don't get connectivity problems and uh, the batteries don't run out.
0: What have you got against ordnance survey maps? Uh, Two
1: details. The cycling maps I use are just at wider scale and, crucially, they show all the official cycle routes and, big plug, they show the cycle repair points, which, <laughs> of course, Ordnance Survey don't. I, this is one of the suggestions for the next revision.
0: Uh, a map can be too detailed, Terry.
2: I guess. I, I think I haven't used an ordnance survey map since I was probably about 15. And we did these you know, Duke of Edinburgh's award expeditions where you had to go round through the sort of the Surrey countryside looking at, you know, whether there was a church with a spire or a church with a steeple, which is about the only symbol I can remember for that and PH for pub um, on an ordnance survey map. And I always kind of thought, wait, where you can tell if it's got a spire or steeple, you just kind of look at it. So, um, but... I do like I kind of like a paper map but I haven't used one I don't think in a long time I know I've got sort of good memories of driving around Europe as, as a reporter or as a producer being told get to you know such and such a place outside of Oslo and stopping in the first available service station and, and buying a map of the local area and trying to find whichever town you were supposed to be heading for where something terrible usually had happened um, so I do, I do kind of miss that but I don't really find that I use I just mostly use the electronic ones these days I mean it always used to carry an A to Z around constantly I mean that used to be a thing always had in my bag and I don't know where that is now either Um, I I
0: do still enjoy a paper map myself especially when in a new city for the first time I I do like the ritual of you know asking the hotel reception yeah, do, maps. do, do, I like those do hotel you actually maps that you get? <laughs> have a map of the hotel ideally a map of, not a map of the hotel a map of the the city ideally surrounded by advertisements for yeah, extremely like dubious mm. night spots <laughs> um, th- th- those are my favorite um, john y- you have given up one already that they should have bicycle repair points uh, on maps what else would you add to the modern map though Public toilets. <laughs> I've never
1: understood why why maps don't indicate uh, what a fairly basic facility. Also, a curious omission: pharmacies, chemist shops. Uh, I mean, you ought you know if, if you, you need medicine quickly, you ought to be able to refer to your paper map and find out where to go. Some maps have some of these places, uh, but most maps no, leave you an, completely in the dark. Terry, so, uh, yeah, a, food, a
2: food shop or something like a bakery. You know, you can have. I can imagine a French map with a little sort of baguette symbol. Like, yeah, where, where to get some food, and ideally somewhere that's open late when you arrive in a strange place and don't know where to get anything to eat. I think that would be much more useful than a sign for a solar farm. Because wh- when have you ever needed to find your way to a solar <laughs>
0: farm? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well, well, you joke, but there's going to come a day when you're going to be very grateful for that map, Terry.
2: Again, <laughs> you can see them; <laughs> they're well, quite big, <laughs> and then maybe want yeah. to avoid but we, them.
0: But we, did. I did wonder as well. Uh, about what you would actually use by way of symbols, because obviously, and I I appreciate where you're going with the baguette image, Terry, but in in these censorious times, somebody's going to get (laughs) dreadfully uh, upset by that. Um, John, how demonstrative or obvious should they be? Uh demonstrative, not so sure. Obvious helps. Mm. I mean,
1: If you're feeling a bit sort of tired after a, a long day cycle, walk, whatever, you don't want to have to peer at the symbol list and try to work out what is what. So something just, you know, like a, a spanner. Tire <laughs> a little
2: flat tyre or something. A little
1: flat tyre, yes, that'd be fine. Or, or a nice big spanner for a cycle repair shop. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not quite sure what the symbol might be for a, a, a public toilet. I,
0: I think we'd have to work on that one. Um, Terry, you, any, any thoughts on this? the symbol for the public well, toilet. I think, the sim- have, sim- I think they
2: have that already. I'm fairly sure there is. symbols but... for
0: things generally.
2: Because <sighs> the, the symbol yeah.
0: for public toilets is usually just a generic human being, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I can't. I can't remember what that symbol is. In fact. Yeah. But yeah, they do. Have, they have viewpoints. I remember there's viewpoints. There's car- castles, and 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 the different letterings are also good. There's like you know gothic script for a particular era of castle. And, and you know, where, where there's a Roman Rome or medieval. One. Roman or medieval. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's always a, obviously a really important thing to know. Perhaps we need a modern script for sort of you know Art Deco building or something. You know, some a new kind of a new kind of a font.
0: And and just finally, where are we both on the modern cult of these sort of public consultations? My my concern is that basically these are all going to end up being called Mappy McMapface.
1: Yes, that, that's always the risk, isn't it? That the great British public, with its warm sense of humour, will, <laughs> will throw any consultation off beam. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I, full disclosure. I've ever taken part in public disclosure, uh, public sorry, public consultations on all kinds of weird things. And I think some of them are actually quite useful. They do actually allow policymakers to to gauge the public mood and to take in new ideas in a way that they might not otherwise do so. But others, of course,
0: go way off beam and produce the craziest results. Uh, what do you think is the is the peril here, Terry, because it's very tempting for an organisation, you can see like the Ordnance Survey, which probably doesn't get a lot of attention paid to it, to try and do something zany uh, in order to get discussed.
2: Yes, yeah, so I think they're probably not committing themselves, are they, to actually saying, you know, the one that gets the most votes will definitely go on the maps. They'll say, we'd love to hear all of your ideas. And then, you know, eventually, a few months down the line, they might come back with the, the ones that they would have chosen anyway, probably. You know, we have no way of, of judging this process. But, it, you know, it gets the attention. It gets us thinking, oh, I, I remember Ordnance Survey maps. Maybe I'll go and download the online ones or go and buy one or something. But uh, Be- the next time we go for a walk.
0: Because the problem here, John, uh, and, you know, present company obviously expe- accepted. that The difficulty with consulting the public is that you tend only to hear from that branch of the public that wishes to express itself. And, th- and those people are just the worst.
1: Well, yes, that's right. <laughs> I mean, to, for consultations to work, you have to have some way of uh, establishing a representative base. Uh, and that is something of a black art. I mean, uh, various uh, polling companies go to great lengths to achieve this. I'm not so sure that some of the public consultations we've seen as particularly around London in recent months, have done more than just, I think what's called convenience sampling. You know, if you've got a view on this, sort of come along, you know, w- wearing your antler horns and your strange furry hat. <laughs> and all about.
2: Maybe this should be an entry test. You should have to answer 10 questions correctly on existing map symbols before you get to pick a new one so that they know that you do actually know what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: You, you, you are you are you are wanting terry to establish some sort of benchmark of basic knowledge before people's opinions are taken yeah, seriously maybe Some kind kind of fascist. Uh, (laughs) Terry Stiastny and John Everard, thank you both for joining us. And finally on today's show, when considering Haywire, the latest compendium of work by Craig Brown of Private Eye and elsewhere, one is forced to sobering conclusions about how many other people Craig makes redundant. Not merely Brown's fellow satirists, few of whom match him for quantity or quality of comic writing, but the people Brown satirises. Brown's pastiches of his targets often sound more like his targets than they do themselves. I spoke to Craig at Midori House earlier. I began by asking if his job gets more difficult as public life grows apparently more and more absurd.
4: The sad thing is that The more ridiculous and the more haywire the world, the better it is for the satirist or the humorist. And so along comes Trump or someone or Boris Johnson or Liz Truss, you know, Mm. amazing. I wanted Liz Truss to go on forever, (laughs) but then she was only there for about two weeks. And so, uh, yeah, I mean people say, oh, well, this is beyond parody. Nothing is really beyond parody. Only very, very boring things are beyond parody. And that's not really what we're talking about.
0: Do you ever get, I guess, confronted by the existential terror of the trade that is any of this actually doing any good? Because obviously, I, I know there's that famous quote of, of Peter Cook's about those cabaret clubs in, <laughs> in Weimar, Germany, which did so much to thwart the rise of the Nazis. But obviously, people, especially in countries where you're allowed to do that, have been making fun of their politicians uh, for decades, and it doesn't appear to correct their behavior.
4: Yes, I mean, that's really why I don't. Uh, I have just called myself a satirist, but I'm not. I don't usually call myself a satirist because I think satire has a kind of agenda, which is mm. to overthrow whatever the regime is or that kind of thing. Or, uh, so it has some political agenda, which I don't have. I don't have any real discernible political views. So I'm much more looking for the joke in things. And so as long as you don't have a, an aim in mind, you know, a political aim in mind, I, th- I think you can remain quite cheery. I was listening to John Lloyd's Desert Island Disc the other day, and he was saying how David Steele had been properly upset by spitting image showing him as a tiny compared to David Owen, you know, he's in David Owen's pocket. And and that's one of the very few examples of satire working but I mean it's so sort of pitiful that I mean who who minded whether David Steele was doing better or worse than <laughs> David Owen and it's all history and and the only other one I can think of is Harry and Paul doing a smashy and nicey the disc jockeys which I think led to the premature downfall of David Lee Travis and those kind <laughs> of but that would have happened anyway but that's not a great uh, you know if it was a lifeboat <laughs> it wouldn't there wouldn't be many uh, people it had rescued if you said a
0: but that that does prompt the question though of I mean contained within Haywire, there's there's all sorts of things there's there's book reviews, there's articles, and there's examples of the regular satire you write for Private Eye, which is somebody's diary, or more often more recently an idea of somebody's Twitter feed. Do you ever hear much back? from the targets thereof. Uh, yeah, I'm mean, a surprising
4: number, and you might see this as showing that it doesn't really work. I <laughs> uh, sort of quite enjoyed. I mean, I'm still friends with... I mean, I have done friends, and and I've made friends of targets. I mean, having... Done that. I mean, some people are furious. I can remember Alan Sugar was furious. Mohammed fired was furious. Uh, well, are the
0: ones you least expect. Uh, yeah, isn't well, it? <laughs> they're, they're the
4: one- <laughs> Yeah, they're the ones you want to be furious. If if uh, either of them had rung up and said, "Hey, let's have a drink," uh, I mean, uh, Tim Rice is furious. Well, I'm quite happy about that. So there are. Yeah, it, it sort of divides, and then you don't know whether the people who pretend they enjoy the joke or just pretending to mm. sort of suck in order to suck up to you or sort of deflate it in future. But I mean, it's not, I, I don't write them with a view to either hurt or or to uh, make the person amused. I'm just looking for a joke. And if it happens to, upset them, and that's sort of collateral damage. I
0: mean, are, are some people easier or more difficult to get a hold of, to find a voice for? I, I do remember asking you about this a long time ago in a less formal setting, and I think you said something about the secret to doing Peter Hitchens was just to put <laughs> inverted commas around every phrase, which looks like <laughs> it might come from after World War Two.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean with someone like him, columnists are very easy, because they all including me, write uh, far too much so they become kind of parodies of themselves no one no one could be as furious as Peter Hitchens and, and as decided on everything as Peter Hitchens so in a way he's he's not sending himself up because he doesn't have a huge sense of humor but they're quite easy so I just I just pretend I'm Peter Hitchens for a bit I, I mean I first I write down say sort of a page or a half page of uh of his kind of phrases uh, and then I sort of channel him like Doris Stokes the old, uh, the <laughs> psychic and then I just give it a kind of 10% twist to make it more more absurd I suppose
0: but does the addition now and you're quite right about columnists and you know me a culprit on this one they, they do crank out far too much but there is of course now the extra dimension which is certainly new since you started writing the Diaries of people's social media feeds and 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 how much extra insight does that give you to work with because there are certain people and one of them does appear in your book, Richard Dawkins, who I suspect it's true to say that social media has not been tremendous for their reputation.
4: No, and I think quite rightly, I mean, I'm not really very up on social media. I'm not on Twitter or anything, but I, I've discovered you can actually just do, you know, when I was actually vanity surfing, I discovered you can just put someone's name in and, and you get all the... And, and, and Dawkins, I mean, I wasn't a huge admirer of Dawkins, but, uh, you know, he's obviously a serious thinker. And then on Twitter, you thought, no, he's just become like Tony Blackburn or something. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, it diminishes. Every, uh, t- Twitter diminishes almost everyone. Mm-hmm. I'm now follow, The only person I actively fo- follow, well, it's not quite actively, but I sort of um, put his name on the search thing, is Danny Baker. I think he gets it exactly right. You know, he puts up interesting videos. He has uh, a few opinions, and it's all kind of light-hearted. But I think if you try and be serious or passionate about anything. It's just not the right uh, place for it.
0: Uh, Just finally, and I I know it is an infuriating question to ask any author who is sitting there with a big actual book of stuff that's just out, but are there more music books in the pipeline? There are reflections on music in this book. I'm David Bowie, The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen. Your most recent one before this was a a very acclaimed um, historiography of The Beatles in which you, you did actually manage to find something new to say about The Beatles, which is like finding a new angle to take a picture of the Taj Mahal that's something that appeared impossible.
4: Um, Yes I I wanted to do uh, for next book something like The Beatles which was uh, which is in a way very well covered so I could then Mm. have the excuse of going down weird little byways and I so I want to do something someone that everyone had an idea about and uh, the only person I could think of was the Queen so I'm doing (laughs) I'm doing the Queen and of course that's the same problem in some ways as it's more of a problem the Beatles because they had a great kind of progress to their lives of being very born very poor and ending up rich famous and all that kind of thing it, and it, it's amazing it's not
0: so much the rags to riches no, thing not... where the Queen's concerned yeah the Queen doesn't yeah. really have a rags
4: <laughs> rags moment and her, she didn't even really change her dress exactly. after the age of six grows uh... up in the
0: back blocks with a crown <laughs> yeah. and a dream yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah so um, it, it might be a bit of a struggle but I'm uh, you know I've, I've started I, I did a year researching it and uh, I started writing it and so i hope i'll find new things to say
0: that was craig brown and haywire the best of craig brown is out now and fairly obviously unreservedly recommended Uh, that is all for this edition of the monocle daily thanks to our guests today terry stiasny and john everard and also thomas lewis in toronto today's show was produced by lillian Fawcett, and researched by andre Nikolai pamintuan our sound engineer was sarah nickel i'm andrew muller here in london the daily is back at the same time tomorrow thanks for listening